Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Acts chapter 21. We're going to hit a hit an issue here that's kind of an interesting one. Verses 15 and following. Submission to authority. Oh, did I really just say that? Oh, man. You know, we could really parse this one out, right? I could probably do 20 different messages on the word submission, and I could probably do 40 messages on the word authority, right? Because everybody, especially us good, red-blooded Americans, the idea of submitting to authority has all kinds of checklist moments to it, doesn't it? Wives, how many times have you been told you need to submit to your husband? <laughs> I probably don't have enough time to go around the room and figure that one out. The multiplicative effect of a wrong definition of submission and or tyrannical authority is indescribable. Correct? All of us, if you've been in church for any period of time, have gone through something that leaves a little bit of a scar. Am I right? Come on, I know, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. All right, so I, I almost ought to dress up. It's, it's like soon time for football season, right? And I almost wanted to get into a football uniform or, or something in order to say, all right, all right, you know. I'm going to say some things this morning. If the shoe fits, wear it. God bless you. I don't got anybody in mind. I'm not trying to attack here. This passage is pretty remarkable because Paul lived out what it means to submit to authority. And he did it with joy. And he gave God credit for it because he understood the will of God, which is our sanctification. He understood that God was working in his life no matter what the circumstance was and that God had promised to bring good out of it. And so you can see in the apostle himself his willingness to submit to the Lord first and to the authority that God had placed over him. Even as an apostle. You can see it in his attitude, the direction of his thoughts, what he wrote to other churches while he was going through some of the direct results that we're going to look at this morning when it comes to his willingness to submit to the elders in Jerusalem and the events that transpire as a result of his submission. It's remarkable. Folks, you can't go wrong submitting to Christ. You may not understand where he's leading. You may not understand how he's going to bring good out of it. You may even suffer in the midst of it, but you can't go wrong in submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ because God has promised to bring good out of everything to those who love him, who are called according to his purposes, which are believers, which are Christians. Some of those things may be difficult things, but you can't go wrong. Submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer, this is not optional. All of us, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you're sitting here, guess what? You are to submit. I am to submit to the headship of Christ himself. And can I gently add to the leadership that God places in your life, including in the church, elders, and pastors. So, Luke continues, verse 15, right? Chapter 21. We've talked about the will of God. Everybody's telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to you. By the way, they weren't commanding him not to go. They were warning him in the going. 
Agabus, in particular, the prophet, stands up, takes Paul's belt, wraps it around, says, this is what's going to happen to the person that owns this belt, Paul. And Paul says, what are you doing? You're breaking my heart. Stop it. I'm ready to die for the gospel of Christ. I already know that I'm going to suffer. And what do they do? They say, okay, the Lord's will be done. We talk through the Lord's will. What does that mean? How do we submit to the Christ? How do we walk with the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances? God is sovereign. He has grace. He produces joy within our lives. We can be at peace no matter what the circumstance may be because we have the peace of God. It continues on, Luke does, in writing about this. It says in verse 15, After these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. They are on their way. They go up to Jerusalem. By the way, the reason it says they go up to Jerusalem is not because they're going north. It's because they're literally going up in elevation. The reason I say that is because some people go, oh, look at the Bible. It doesn't know what it's talking about. There's mistakes all the way through it. And they use that as an example, and I think that's just flat out stupid. Verse 16. Sorry for the kids. I shouldn't say that word. God, the Hopkins boys aren't here. (laughs) All right, verse 16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. I think this is really interesting. Okay, we're going to just walk through this passage, just kind of comment on it. I want to talk about submission to authority. Here we have a picture of Paul along with some of the other disciples from Caesarea coming to Jerusalem. Nason of Cyprus is a disciple of long standing. He evidently has a home in Jerusalem. They're going to stay with him, so they've made preparations for this. But I want you to catch verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us what? Gladly. To my knowledge, that's the first time it's stated like that. In fact, if you go back in Acts chapter 15, verse 4, take time, look it up later, but Acts chapter 15, verse 4, after the first missionary journey, you had all these uh, Gentiles coming to know Christ, you had Judaizers coming in, teaching false doctrine, they had to go back to Jerusalem in order to establish the grace of Christ. Both Peter and Paul were saying the same things, you don't have to do anything other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and once you're saved, you don't have to follow the law in order to prove your salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. And they gave very specific things, which we're going to see in this passage, for the Gentiles to abstain from. So there was freedom in this. They came to Jerusalem, it says, when they arrived at Jerusalem for that council because of this issue. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. Do you see the word gladly in there? Oh, here comes Paul. We're so glad to see you, brother. (laughs) I don't know. It wasn't stated. If you look back at Acts chapter 18, verse 22, his second journey is over, missionary journey. Again, we have all kinds of things that God has been doing through the apostle Paul. Miracles taking place all over the place. And he wants to get back to Jerusalem. He wants to give them a report. Luke records in verse 22 of chapter 18, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Wow. Big whoop. He gets to Jerusalem. Do you see the word gladly there? Do you see any joy in it? I mean, it's a one phrase within a sentence moment where it concludes by, he went back to Antioch. Folks, you remember the first time that Paul came into Jerusalem? They were scared to death of him. 
Barnabas had to grab Paul and take him to the apostles and elders to say, hey, this guy got saved. Then they reached out and embraced him. And I don't know how warm of an embrace this was. Luke records for us now this fourth time in coming that they received us gladly. Oh, I love that. The joy. Let me ask you something. Why do you think that is? Why this time, all of a sudden, does Luke write that? Can I make a suggestion? I think I will. The idea is that Paul had submitted to their authority all along. He had submitted to the leadership of the church. He had made it a point to come to them and give them specific reports. That's what he's doing this time. He wants to come to them to let them know that I am under your authority. And even though I'm going all through the Gentile world, and even though many are coming to Christ, and even though God's doing a tremendous work in and through me, even though I have the position and title of an apostle, and he had to defend it, not for his own sake, but rather because that's what God had called him to, what does he do? He goes and he submits to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the other elders at Jerusalem. That's folks, something we ought to take note of. There's an attitude here. There's a recognition of who's the head of this church, and there's a recognition of submitting to the Lord first and to the leaders that God has put in place. I think that's a beautiful truth. I think it's something to hang on to. I don't think you can ever go wrong submitting in the right way to authority. Because I think authority is looked upon in our day and age as a threat. And God has designed authority to be a protection. We've got this very backwards. And we use all kinds of circumstances and situations that we've gone through in our lives in order to read in and to change God's pattern and what the Lord desires for us to experience in the midst of it. Verse 18, it says, the following day, Paul went in with us to James. He's the half-brother of Christ. And all the elders were present. This is a big issue. Paul's been out. They sent him out. He's gone into the whole Gentile world. Many things have taken place. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Now, did you catch that? I read it pretty quickly, but did you catch this? After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one what? The things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. The word ministry means service. He didn't come back and say, look at us. Look at me. He didn't do that. He said, look at God. Look what the Lord's done. Look how God worked in our lives and through our lives. Look what God has done through our service. Folks, when we talk about ministry, we talk about serving the Lord. It should never be about us, ever. It always ought to be about God. In fact, I would suggest to you, if it's about us, it's not from God. I don't care if God, by his grace, somehow did some miraculous things in the midst of our fleshly and carnal thinking. 
It is always about the Lord. We are created for his glory, which means that he wants to exhibit himself through us to the world. It's never about us, what we can do for him. John 15, he makes it very clear. Apart from me, you can do not what? One thing. We are utterly reliant upon the Lord Jesus Christ to transform us and then to begin to work in and through us. Paul is a humble servant of the king. And he submits to the authority of the Lord. He submits to the authority of the elders in Jerusalem. And it's beautiful to watch. So he begins to account all the different things. He begins to relate to them one by one the things which God has done. They heard it. They began glorifying God. They began giving credit to God because he's worthy of that credit. He alone is worthy of that credit. It is through his ministry that God has worked and they begin to glorify the Lord. Now what we get into now is really interesting because there's a, there's a potential real problem. It, it, it has come up over and over and over again. It's the underlying story in Acts. It's the Judaizers coming. It's the council's decision. It's the people that are coming and trying to impose on the Gentiles the need to do something in order to get saved. And it's the Pharisees who have become saved or believers within the body of Christ who are still clinging to the law and saying, well, if you're a believer, prove it by doing all these things that we tell you to do or that are according to Moses. And so this underlying current of law versus grace is always there. And law versus grace is not simply an issue of coming to Christ and how we're saved. It's also how we walk in Christ. That it's by God's grace. It's not because of our own strength. We're strengthened in the strength of the Lord. It's not because of our wisdom. He alone is the wise God. And you can go on and on. It's because of Christ in us. As he transforms us, renews our minds, as we make the decision to say yes to him, to yield to his authority in our lives, to yield to who he is, and get into the word of God and to be renewed so that God begins to transform us so that then he begins to lead us and direct us, empowering us all along the way. Because we have been created for good works. But God's the one that does that. So the following day, he goes up to James, gives an account, they glorify the Lord, and then he goes on and he says, they said to him, you see, brother, this is the elders talking to Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, that's not a put down. We've got to be careful not to filter that one through our Baptist thinking here. They're applauding these people for this. They are believers, and they're zealous for the law in the right way. They recognize the law is not sufficient for salvation. But they also recognize Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. And as a result, they recognize their righteousness does not come as a result of their keeping the law. But rather through Christ who is the fulfillment of the law in them and then through them. Love, as Paul wrote in Romans, is the fulfillment of the law. Against love, there is no law. If you're walking surrendered and yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? God in you is producing his love. And if you are walking according to God's strength, according to his ways, and if Christ is being exhibited in and through your life, then love is being revealed. And there is no law breaking when that takes place. No matter what law you want to talk about. They're zealous for the law. 
Why? Because they understand the truth of it. They understand the whole picture of it. They recognize the reality of Christ in the midst of that. And then they go on and they say this. They've been told about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Oh, we've heard this, haven't we? Over and over again, all the way back to Stephen and the stoning of Stephen and how Moses had to be clarified and what Moses had to say. And if you really believe in me, you, if you really believe in Moses, you would believe in me. Jesus himself said that. This is a constant theme. You're forsaking Moses. You're teaching others to forsake Moses. You're telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. In other words, you're telling them to forsake their Jewishness. They don't need to do that. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So here's the problem. The Judaizers have been hard at work. They're trying to discredit Paul's ministry. Ergo, they're trying to discredit the gospel of grace. They're trying to discredit the work that the Lord has been doing through the apostles. The elders understand this. They recognize this. They've been teaching in Jerusalem. They know the people that are there. They've heard these rumblings. They had to come up with the counsel and the decision in terms of how to deal with the Gentiles. They, they understand this. They're in the midst of it. Peter had run into this crowd when he had been with the centurion, Cornelius, back in Acts chapter 10 and, and 11. Right? They, they said, you were with the uncircumcised. Same group of people, same thinking all the way through. Acts chapter 15 says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I mean, this, is, this has been going on and on and on. They're all very aware of this. They all recognize the issue. At this particular point in time, the elders are looking at the thousands of Jewish believers who are in Jerusalem, and they know what is being said to them about these, from these Judaizers about the Apostle Paul, and they know that they got a problem. There's a potential for disunity within the body of Christ. There's a potential for a real clash to take place. And they don't want to see that happen. So we hit the first part of verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. Oh, what? Therefore, do this that we tell you. I want to tell you, if you look at some of the commentaries, they gloss over this one. Oh, they were just giving a suggestion to Paul. They were just saying, you know, with wisdom, Paul, it might be a good idea. In order for the church to get along with one another. Maybe if you feel like it, pray about it for a few days. No, no, no. That's not the language here. James and the elders said to the apostle, because of all this, this is what we want you to do. This is what we're commanding you to do. Oh, wow, I want you to think, I want you to hit that one for a minute. Were they asking him to do something unbiblical? Were they presenting false doctrine in some way? Were they telling him to teach something that was contrary to the word of God? No way. 
This is a practical matter with regard to the direction of the body of Christ. This is something that was essential for the unity of the body in order to make sure that the unity was preserved, in order to make sure that the witness and the testimony of the church, the local church in Jerusalem, and the extended church into all the different areas that Paul had gone was preserved. And they said, you do this. And Paul did not say, you're nuts. No way, you bunch of idiot elders. Are you kidding me? I mean, the law? Come on, really? You want me to go take a, 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 you want me to take a vow? You want me to go to the temple and act like somehow this is worth anything? You, what? Come on, man, guys. I'm already saved. Christ in me. Grace. I don't need that. No, he doesn't say that at all, does he? He does it. He does it. What happens? He says, we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses. Good night. You mean they're telling Paul to pay for something? Wow. Man, don't tell us that. So that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. How about that? But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, and here they, they kind of readdress the council's decision that had taken place a couple years before. We wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication, sexual immorality. They just reaffirm what they had already decided, but they're telling Paul, listen, here's what we want you to do. We want you to take these four men. They have a vow. They need their hairs shaved. We want you to pay for it, and we want you to go with the, in the temple with these guys to be identified with them, to role model to all these believers who have been told that you're teaching against Moses and our customs, to show them that you're not doing that so that there can be Unity within the body. So that the naysayers and the people that are false, the people that are teaching wrong things, the people that are creating confusion will have nothing to say. You know, it's interesting, not long before this, and I have a feeling within the account that Paul gives to the elders in Jerusalem, there was a discussion of this. Paul actually had gone through a very similar process himself in terms of a vow and cutting his hair. In Acts chapter 18, verse 18, it says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And in Centria, what does he do? He had his hair cut. Why? For he was keeping a vow. I don't think there's coincidences here. I think there was a little bit of a coming together moment. Oh, you did that in Centria? You know what, Paul? Here's some wisdom. We want you to do that again. We want you to do it with these four men. We want you to role model that you're not against the law. You're preaching Christ who alone is able to fulfill the law. So what does Paul do? Verse 26, Paul took the men next day purifying himself along with them. Ho-hum. Ho-hum. Oh, I can hear it now. Folks, I think at times we've got to take a deep look at our attitude towards the Lord first and foremost and our attitude towards authority. And we've got to ask ourselves the question. We say 
we're yielded to Christ. We say we're walking in obedience to the Lord. We say that we worship him and we give him our lives. And anything God asks for us to do, we're absolutely willing to do it. My friend, how can you not be submitted to the authority that God has placed in your life and at the same time be submitted to the Lord? It's interesting, isn't it? Fascinating. Can we learn from this? I think we can. Paul recognized that God's in control. His attitude and his actions reflected that. You know what's interesting to me is, we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks, but what happens? What happens here? Paul goes down and takes the vow with this guy. What, what, what do the Judaizers do? They falsely accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple where it's very clearly stated that if you bring a Gentile into that area, you better watch out because your life is forfeit. You know what's interesting is the Romans had actually agreed to give the Jews the power to kill a Gentile that did that. So what happens? Paul goes down, does what he does, and they lie about it. They say, oh, you brought a Gentile in here. They begin to beat him. They're not just trying to beat him up and rough him up. They're trying to kill him because they had the authority from Rome to do it. It took a Roman centurion to come and rescue him. What happens next? Paul gets imprisoned for two years in Caesarea. What happens next? He's got to go before Festus and Agrippa. And what does he do? He appeals to Caesar. He ends up shipwrecked on his way to Rome, placed on an island called Malta, bitten by a viper. All the people thought, I can't wait to get to this one. It's hilarious. They thought, he's going to die, man. That's good. Man, you don't get bit by that viper and not die. And he doesn't die. He just shakes it off into the fire. (laughs) He goes on to Rome. And what happens? He's there for two years under house arrest. Do you realize that he wrote the letter of Philippians while that was taking place? What does he say in the letter of Philippians? Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brethren, he's speaking about his circumstances that directly are traceable back to this command that the elders gave him to go do. That my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Do you hear bitterness in that? Do you hear anger that the way he had been treated? Disdain? Those silly, rascally elders in Jerusalem really messed up my plans. (laughs) No. You hear submission, yielding, obedience, love, gratitude, thankfulness, a glorifying of God. Because in the midst of it all, Paul understood that God was sovereign over it all and that God was bringing good out of it for the glory of God. Of God. You know what else is interesting? If you keep on in Philippians, is he writes in Philippians 2 have this attitude in yourselves, which is also found in Christ Jesus, 
What does he give the example of? Not only is Paul a living example of this, but Christ is the greatest example of submitting to authority that we have. What did he do? He entrusted himself to the Father. What happened? He went to the cross and he died a brutal death, unfairly, without merit. No charge could stick. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God went to the cross under the direction of the Father. Why? To shed his blood so that we might have the opportunity of being forgiven by our sin, to be rightly related to the Father, not by our works, not by how good we think we are, but rather because of what Christ has done for us. What a beautiful picture. Paul's writing this from a Roman prison where he's chained to the praetorium. He can take visitors, he can receive them, he can obviously write, but he writes not only about himself and not only that, hey, guess what, folks? Everything that's happened to me is for the glory of God. It's actually advanced the gospel even more. But then he goes in to the character and the humility of our Lord himself in order to remind us who it is that we follow. The attitude that is in Christ is to be in us. How does that take place? Well, Christ lives in me. And as I yield my way to him, God begins to produce in and through me the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and all the different attitudes that go along with that. What a beautiful truth. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Wow. First and foremost, let's, let's be reminded here, we, we submit to the Lord. And I want to encourage you in this, because I think this is absolutely to un, essential to understand. There is no authority that we are to submit to that has the right to tell us to do something contrary to the word of God. Did you catch that? I I don't care what level we put this in. I I mean, if it's a child to a parent and the parent's telling the child to do something unbiblical, the Bible doesn't say, oh, do the unbiblical thing. Or a wife to a husband, do the unbiblical thing. Or a nation to a people, do the unbiblical thing. No, no. We submit to the Lord first. And in the midst of that, we always keep in mind that God has placed authority over us in all kinds of different spheres, all kinds of different arenas that we are to submit to. Let me give you some examples, right? I kind of mentioned them. Children, kids, you're to submit to your parents. It's not optional. He doesn't say, ah, if you wake up on the right side of bed. Understand, it's always within the context of as unto the Lord, right? Students, you're about to go back to school. Oh, that teacher drives me crazy. I don't want to do that project. Y'all have heard that a thousand times, right? I want to run in the hall. I remember when I was growing up, I loved throwing things. Man, I like throwing things. And so in Pennsylvania, we would have snow, and buddy, I want to tell you, I'd light people up because get that snowball, boom, let it fly. And that was wrong. I wasn't supposed to do that. And I had some idiot little safety guy catch me one time and pull me before the principal as I was waiting for the bus, because I had lit him up. (laughs) 
And he said, Mr. Principal, I don't remember the guy's name now, sorry. <laughs> Long time ago, right? He said, Eric's throwing snowballs. And the principal looked at me, and I could immediately tell the principal was like, oh, my goodness, what an idiot's safety. But he had to support him because the guy was in authority. And he said, Eric, stop throwing snowballs. on him. Oh, Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Right? You may not like it. may not fit within your box. But it's not optional. Wives, I don't got to say it. Oh, you may not like it. You may rage against it. You may have 50 different reasons why this is stupid. Whatever. Oh, you got to stop saying a word. Right? (laughs) But the reality of it is this is God's plan. This is what God has set up. This is how God's designed it. Don't blame me. Blame God. Go to him about it. We live in a nation of law. Folks, I don't care whether you agree with the current administration or not. I don't care if you don't like that 35-mile-an-hour speed zone. I don't care whatever. What are we to do? We're to submit. Why? What does that show about us? When we're able to submit to the authority God's placed over us, what does that reveal to people It reveals humility within our hearts that we're willing, first and foremost, to submit to the Lord. And again, we're not talking about unbiblical things here. We never submit to unbiblical things. As a church, who do we submit to? Do not say the elders first. Please, it is the Lord. And how has the Lord designed the church? Our elders and pastors are to shepherd the flock of God. Folks, we are to submit. Well, you know what? I submit. I submit to the elders. There have been times I haven't agreed with them. There have been times they haven't agreed with me. We submit to one another because we're ultimately submitted to the Lord, and we want to hear from the Lord on these things. Pastors, this is not your ministry God's ministry. I say that to myself as anybody else. This is God's ministry. We're here to follow the Lord. We're here to hear from him and say, Lord, where do you want to direct us? How do you want to guide us? What is it that you want to do in and through this body of believers? Help us to listen to you carefully and yield our way to you. You know, the lack of submission is really detrimental deeply detrimental. It it shows up in all kinds of ways, right? Blatant rebellion. Teenagers. (laughs) You know? Hey, I want you to go do this. No way, mom and dad. I don't want anything to do with it, you know? Two-year-olds are amazing. I mean, they can't say it, and thank God they can't, because we wouldn't want to hear what's coming out. Right? Blatant rebellion. Will not. That shows up in all kinds of things. Insubordination. I don't agree, so not going to do it. I'll say one thing to your face, but I'll do something behind your back. Right? Passive-aggressive behavior, very similar to that. The knife in the back. Oh, man. 
What happens? Gossip, tearing down. I don't agree, so I'm going to tear down. Stirring up strife. You see it within a body of believers. You don't, you don't agree with this. You don't agree with these, these guys, whatever. You can put it in any kind of. You can say, I don't agree with that K-group leader. I don't agree with that shepherd group leader. I don't agree with that student pastor. I don't agree with whatever. You fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, you've got the stirring up of strife. You've got division. Consensus building. Hate that one. Really do. Drives me absolutely insane in the sense of the body of Christ. This is not politics. This is about Christ, and it's about walking with him. When people who are not willing to submit to the Lord first and foremost have ideas and all kinds of things, and all of a sudden they start building consensus. Because by themselves they feel alone, and they don't want to go and deal with it in a right way, and so all kinds of things begin to take place, and ah, the attacks. Creates division within the body, folks. I've seen, I've been at many different churches now, and, and one of the things that people do, because this is interesting, particularly within an elder form of government, money becomes the tool. Well, I don't agree with you, so I'm just not going to give. Folks, that's sinful. That's carnal. There's no other way to put it. Or I'll give, but I'm going to do it in this way. And I don't, <laughs> we don't support the way this is going, so we're going to give it to missions instead. Or we're going to give it to a parachurch organization that, hey, oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. Folks, I find that wrong. I don't see that being biblical. A lot of times people just wait and see what the response is going to be, and all of a sudden they, they fade away. <laughs> Have you had that? It's fade away. I've been in churches where I've had discussions with somebody, and three weeks later all of a sudden I go, where is that person? Where'd they go? I missed them. What happened? Oh, they're at such and such a church. Is that biblical? Well, I thought the Bible said if you've got a problem, go to the person and get it straightened out, get it right. And then if the Lord leads you somewhere else, that's fine, but make it right. Make it right. Let me give you a couple verses on this. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, fascinating passage. The Lord puts it this way. He says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. An abomination to him. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. Oh. Do do we realize how serious God takes this? We may have all our reasons why we think it's correct and right. But when it leads to division, when it leads to strife, the Bible says that's an abomination. I was reading... 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Saul is the king and Samuel had told him to wait for him because he wanted to do a sacrifice. They were about to go into war. Samuel was a little late in showing up, seven days late. Saul got worried because a lot of his warriors were leaving, right? So he decided to take things into his own hands. And he does the sacrifice. And as soon as he's done the sacrifice, who shows up? Isn't that the way it always works? 
I mean, give me a break. Saul's probably going, good night. What? Why didn't you come five minutes ago? <laughs> you know? Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? There's a lot of issues in this story. But Samuel in verse 22 says this, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, I, I would be willing to bet if we walked around the room, everybody here understands that one, right? We've heard that. We know that. If we went to that story and we said that's the phrase, we don't, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that. Wait a second. Let's look at the rest of what he has to say. To heed than the fat of rams, meaning obedience is more important than sacrifice. Verse 23 says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Oh. Do we realize that when we, and I'm not talking about baby bathwater here, right? I'm talking about when we have a disagreement, it's not a biblical, it's not a doctrinal one. We're not talking about somebody teaching that the virgin birth did not take place and having to correct that and all that kind of stuff. Or somehow uh, maybe leaders within the church saying this is correct when biblically we can go to the word of God and we know that that's not correct. Or uh, a husband asking a wife to do something or a teacher or whatever. You, you can put it in all these roles of authority. We're not talking about doing unbiblical things here, submitting to that uh, authority that is unbiblical. We're talking about yielding to the Lord first and foremost and according to his ways and the way that he has orchestrated things, whether it's within the family, whether it's within the community, whether it's within the church. Do we realize that when we are unwilling to yield, that it's as if, we were idolatrous. Oh, that ought to wake us up, I think. Because you know the truth of the matter is, is every one of us here struggles with this automatically because of our flesh. Automatically because of our flesh. It is Christ in us who's able to transform us. It is Christ in us that even leads us to yield. It is by God's grace that we walk in submission to the Lord first and foremost and to one another in all the different various capacities. Let me give you a, a few thoughts on this. First of all, if this is an issue, maybe it's a brother, sister, maybe it's a situation where you feel convicted, first thing to do is get right with God through repentance and confession of sin because it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. The activity, the attitude is just symptomatic. The attitude, the activity is simply symptomatic of your heart. First and foremost, get it right with God. Repent of it. Acknowledge it to God. And confess. Agree with him that it's sin. Get the heart right. Secondly, get right with the person you've sinned against. Ask for forgiveness. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but this has happened over and over again, and I've done it too. Well, I didn't mean to do that. Friend, I'm so sorry. I apologize. It was in the heat of the moment. I'm a passionate person, and I just said some things, and I, I just, I, you know, I blew it. I'm so sorry. It's just my personality. I apologize. What? I don't see that in the Word of God. 
When we talk about confession of sin, we're talking about very specific things that the Holy Spirit has said to us that that was wrong. And when we go to our brother and sister and we ask for forgiveness, may I suggest that you specifically share with them how it is that you've sinned against them. And then say, I take ownership of this. I sinned against you and I'm asking you to forgive me. Thirdly, begin to pray for one another. Begin to thank the Lord for your brother or sister in Christ. (laughs) I think sometimes we forget we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord went to the cross for all of us. And all of a sudden it becomes an us versus them. And you go, what? No, no, no. Do we see one another through the eyeglasses of Christ? When somebody has sinned against me or somebody sins against you, do you immediately run to the Lord and say, Lord, it's such a small thing compared to what I've sinned against you in. I forgive them already. Pray for one another. Thank the Lord for your brother or sister in Christ. Intentionally. You may not feel like it, but do it. In God's grace and in his power, recognizing the truth and the veracity of the word of God, that the Lord loves each and every one of us. Get in the word together. Boy, if there's such a division that you can't see eye to eye and you're not sure exactly how to get this thing right, get the Lord to be the focus. Get your eyes on Christ. Be in prayer together. Get in the word of God together. Say, let's seek the Lord together on this thing. And you know what I've found? When you begin to thank God for that person, when you begin to pray for that person, when you begin to walk in God's love for that person as you yield and submit your way to the Lord first and foremost, you know what begins to happen? God begins to change your heart. And all of a sudden, you don't see that person as a threat anymore, as an enemy anymore. You begin to recognize that brother truly is a brother. That sister really is a sister. And God begins to change our hearts. And all of a sudden, God begins to bring us together. And that's the miracle of grace. That's the miracle of Christ and the body of Christ. Ask the Lord to give wisdom and direction. Lord, what would you have us to do? Where is it that you want to lead? What is it that you want rather than what I want? And lastly, with that thought in mind, release to the Lord. Give it to him. Any agenda that you may have, any offense given or received, release it to the Lord. Give it to him. You want to see something happen and you're just upset that it's not happened? Release it to the Lord. Give it to him and begin to pray and get in the word of God about it. Because I want to tell you something. If God's for it, who can stand against it? Who? If God's against it, who's going to make it happen? (laughs) God's sovereign. He's the Lord. When we begin to release our agendas, when we begin to release the ways that we've been wronged, whatever that may look like, and we say, Lord, you take it. All of a sudden, God begins to bring a freshness into our lives. God begins to transform and renew us. We have the opportunity of walking with the Lord. We experience his life and his joy and his peace and his love, all the different things that Christ is. But I fear that often we get stuck. We get stuck for whatever reason it may be. Folks, submitting to authority is not an easy task, and I want to tell you something. I've wrestled with it a ton. Uh, don't, don't look at me up here as if somehow I'm... No, 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 no. 
I get it. It's not easy. But you know, it's God's grace. And when we go to the Lord and we begin to look at the word of God and we begin to walk in the truth of the word of God and we begin to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, when we begin to yield our way to him first and foremost, guess what? God gives us grace with one another. God gives us grace in the midst of circumstances that are difficult. And all of a sudden, we walk through those circumstances exhibiting the life of Christ in and through us. Because the Lord went to the cross at the direction of the Father and gave us the supreme example of what it means to be abused in a way that he was unworthy of and to do it with joy. Wow. Where are you? Where are you in your walk with the Lord? What's God doing in your life? What authority has God placed in your life that is absolutely causing you to chafe? Do you need to release it to him? Maybe somebody's done something against you and you just need to release it to the Lord. Give it to him. And it's not just a one-time thing. Maybe it's over and over and over again because every time it comes to your mind, don't just ignore it. Don't just try to repress it. Replace it. Replace it with what? The word of God. The word of God will renew your mind. You begin to walk in his goodness to the point where all of a sudden you're able to say with joy, hey, thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.